0: I'm Harville Hendricks
1: and Helen McKelly Hunt
0: and you are listening to the
1: Soul of Life which is awesome we know you'll enjoy it
0: I'm Keith Miller I bring together people who are interested in slowing down to understand how the mind works and how we can live in greater connection to one another in a fast-paced stressful world this is the Soul of Life Hey everyone, it's Keith Miller. Welcome back to The Soul of Life. Today, I'm talking with someone named Paula Scataloni. Paula is a SSP practitioner. That means safe and sound protocol. It's developed by Stephen Porges quite a while ago, actually. And it relates to reprocessing emotional experiences by training the muscles in the inner ear using sound, especially filtered music played over a certain number of sessions that allows the inner ear muscles to relax and shift back to a more flexible, responsive state and get out of a state of rigidity that might have been caused by periods of stress. And I'm really interested in talking with Paula, especially because she's now my teacher. I'm working with her in one of her groups that she's offering, where you do this medicine, they call it actually. Getting a dose of this music is what they consider powerful medicine. And uh, then you process in the group. So I'm excited to share this with you. As you know, I've been on a journey uh, dealing with my own depression that's taken me through exploring psychedelics, including ketamine and other psychedelics. And those have gotten me actually pretty far. And there's still a little ways for me to go. (laughs) It's definitely more that I need to work on and unpack some of the junk that's in the trunk. So Paula Scatoloni, without further ado, Safe and Sound Protocol, thanks for listening. I'm here with Paula Scataloni. Good morning, Paula. How are you?
1: Good morning. I'm great. How are you doing today?
0: Doing great. I want to jump right in to talk about some interesting topics. We're going to cover how you use sound and acoustics in therapy for treatment and healing. But I want to dive in with the first question and ask you about self. How do we define self and why is that important to the subject of working with sound and and treatment? Mm-hmm.
1: So I feel like I've been on a journey to support people to connecting to the true self uh, since I began um, my journey as a provider um, for me, the self means the most essential, authentic aspect of who you are, and when I was a therapist, more so it meant that I was supporting individuals at that time to come into a knowingness of who they were um, emotionally, who they were in terms of their belief systems, who they were in terms of their values, and hopefully creating a life so that your outside matched the inside, right? But as I've continued my path of my own expansion, um, I've come to see the self as something even more than that, which I would say starts to move into more um, esoteric or spiritual principles Around Mm -hmm. self and that's the larger self, which uh, I believe from an internal family systems perspective, you know, it speaks to this wiser point of reference that we have that is already whole and that knows how to move us towards wholeness when the right conditions are set. Right. Right. And so that is what self means to me today. So I think it is evolved as I have evolved as a therapist and as a in my own uh practice of of personal and spiritual growth
0: yeah great right yeah, yeah I mean and just to pick up on something you're you're using and we're using the, the term self in a kind of more technical term whereas casually if somebody might say you know I'm not myself today or you don't seem like yourself everyone kind of has that sense of like authentic self or you know something's happened you know, I've just watched a scary movie, so I'm really not myself. Um, or something has happened to us it's scary. But you're talking about a wiser self. And explain for the listeners, like, why you got started with using the body. Like, if I come to you and say, I'm, I, I have these persistent negative thoughts, and they uh, just keep harassing me, and they're telling me all sorts of terrible things about me, And I would expect you to talk to me about my thoughts. So where does the body come in?
1: Where does the body come in? Well, my journey to the body began because I was working with people who probably have the most disconnection from the body, which are folks with eating disorders. So that's how I came into uh, using the body more in therapy. But I came to know through my experience as a somatic experiencing practitioner, that the body is important regardless of what someone enters into treatment for, that we negate the body often as providers. Maybe we negate our own bodies and information coming from that, but certainly we don't consider that the body is telling us a story and has just as much information as the mind and as the thoughts. And because a somatic therapist would be also very interested in the nervous system itself and the physiology and what the physiology is telling us about um, the terrain and how that is then influencing your thoughts. So some providers start with the thoughts, but I might use the thoughts to consider what's happening in the body and how does that inform the thoughts you're having.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So they're like layers of a cake, really. Yes, yes. And sometimes if, if we forget about the body, then we don't have anything to put the icing on. Yes. <laughs> something well, like that.
1: Something like that, or I think of it as points, where do you want to start from? Some providers start from the mind and then maybe consider, well, what happens in the body as you think that thought, right? And somatic providers tend to listen to the narrative and then invite the person to go into the body and explore what might be happening there that informs that narrative.
0: And what do you find out typically? What information are you looking for? And how do you respond to it? I I think I might have read somewhere about your work that, tell me if I got this right, that you worked in more hands-on modalities until you became trained as a therapist and then realized there are limitations in our Western approach to therapy and medicine boundaries uh, where we don't, therapists generally don't touch our clients. So how did that work for you?
1: How does that work? Well- Peter Levine, who developed somatic experiencing, was a rolfer to begin with. And so that was my entry point. I did actually start with more traditional forms of therapy, like CBT, but always had a a flair or a calling to utilize modalities like gestalt or focusing that had a body-based component Right, and can
0: you, so can you speak to what Rolfing is?
1: What Rolfing? Rolfing is otherwise known as structural integration. So the idea with Rolfing is that the body itself and how we hold our musculature and our bones and uh, influences our psyche. And mm. so, um, I myself am not a Rolfer, but I believe that it's another way of influencing our psychological processes by starting with the body itself. And so a somatic therapist takes that into consideration as well. But our training primarily is on the nervous system and how the nervous system speaks. And so we have an understanding of um, what would be more more commonly known as our threat response system, fight, flight, or freeze. And so we're trained to track that, kind of like trackers uh, who track animals in the wild so we're trained to track human bodies and our own and we become sort of like biofeedback machines in the room where we can track other people's bodies using our own body and this idea of um being able mirror neurons and being able to pick up on things that are happening uh in the room and so that influence then um my awareness that there was much more going on than just the thoughts in somebody's mind. Right. And then I was using touch, which is an advanced somatic experiencing training and being able to read the physiology with my hands. And so that's a hands-on approach. And then um, from there, there's a few SE faculty members that also train people in reading the attachment system. And the relational bonding system through touch. And so that is where the steps that led me to using more parts work during touch. And then because COVID, wonderful or not, arrived, um, I could no longer touch. So that's when the sound came in. And I found I was getting the same results with the sound as I was with the touch. So I became very curious about sound and how sound works, this particular program in general,
0: yeah. Great, uh, I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about what, what kinds of sounds and like how that gets implemented, especially if you're not there in the room with them. Um, but what were the results you were seeing before? If, if we can illustrate, like what, what, what's the expectation in a somatic experiencing um, flow uh, where you maybe start with someone who has rigidity or chaotic, chaotic type of disorganized attachment or rigidity in the personality and in the in the affect, and the, you can see the fight flight freeze firing when it doesn't really need to. How do you move? Yeah. You know, what's the result? What are you hoping for there?
1: Yes. So someone who would be coming for we called it table work. So table work, it's um differentiating it from body workers, right? And it's intentional touch. So the intention is to bring them into more safe awareness in the body through neutral touch from a person who's regulated. And I would say sitting in their own sense of self, right? So there's a sense of being able to feel me and then feel you next to me, supporting me which many people do not have that experience, right? Right. And then um, tuning into to support what we call coherence in the mind-body system. And so what that means is, I like to use the analogy of an orchestra. When we do not have coherence, which would be the case for somebody who has um, attachment disruptions or trauma, we have our thoughts doing one thing, our behavior doing another, our emotions doing another thing. And it's like many instruments in an orchestra, and they're all playing out of tune. And so um, with touch work and with sound, we entrain, that's a word we use, um, to bring something that's not into coherence into coherence, to bring something that's not in harmony into harmony. And so with touch, we do that with our own presence and the idea of attuned, a embodied presence or co-regulation, right? Which is Stephen Porges' work with, around teaching people about the social engagement system and how to influence another person's social engagement system with your own. And so we- In, in like other words, the idea
0: that 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 if I'm stressed by something, I might, my brain might outsource to you or the people near me some of the some of the stress. I'm it's contagious, right? There's the affect is contagious between people in a group. When somebody's when when the affect is joy and pleasure, then that spreads through the group. There's co-regulation when the affect yes. is fear or terror, that spreads like wildfire. Right?
1: Yes. And I might even simplify it more to say if you are in a stress response, it's a state of disconnection. If I am with you and I'm in a state of connectivity, I can entrain you into that state of connectivity and help you find it again. And we can do that even if we're sitting across from people. But when we do that with touch which is a powerful sensory system, Um, it, uh, I feel, can invite more of us into regulation um, in a way that can get underneath the prefrontal cortex and um, give a message or an invitation uh, to all of the body That you are safe or welcomed or, you know, uh, that it's okay to be here and be present now. Mm
0: -hmm. I imagine you've had to go through your own process or maybe it's an active ongoing process like it is when we do IFS therapy of we're constantly working with our own parts. You know, somebody comes in and they remind us of something, even if we don't think they remind us of something we in we actively look for the the ways in which our parts are resonating with, taking sides with liking them or disliking them, and we're trying to work with those parts of us to get them to relax and step aside or be processed in some place that's not using the client to process. Um, but I imagine and there's so much that some of it's inevitable, right that that there is transference. How have you what's what's your journey been like? with this sort of intensive work uh, and taking on that role of co-regulating
1: for somebody. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, um, I am a um, person who is very dedicated to my own process and learning. And so Mm -hmm. I have in 30 years unpacked a lot and the ability to track my moment-to-moment processes um, so that I'm aware of what influences me when I'm sitting across from you so I can stay in more neutrality. And I think that comes from many, many, many sessions of our own work. And this speaks to the fact that we do need to do our own work to... I mean, I had had about 80 sessions by the time I was done getting my SEP certification over three years, but Mm -hmm. that's a lot of my own somatic tracking of my own processes.
0: (laughs) It's really an investment, and you can really tell the difference of sitting with somebody that has had that. Yes. Um, Take us into how you use sound, and, and what is the... SSP, Safe and Sound Protocol, and how does that relate to what you do?
1: Sure. So um, there's all kinds of ways to use sound these days. And this particular version or program is very unique because it's not just the sound itself, which Dr. Porges has designed to influence the nervous system through the acoustic pathway. So he has, um, I would say, captured the frequency of safety and feeds it to you in what I call a a microdose over a period of time. And as you receive the safety through your auditory pathway, um, your middle ear receives a a workout, a neurological workout, as it's receiving um, the tones that are not high-pitched, which would be associated with threat or low-pitched, but they're just in that middle range. And then as it enters the nervous system, um, we start to see your body's response to the invitation of safety. Equally, it also is a vagal nerve stimulator. So it innervates the vagal nerve. And we know that runs from the brainstem to the gut. And so every organ in your body is getting vibrated or vibrational support, I should say, right? Um, and so my use of it, um, because it works with the social engagement system, right? And your processes, your eyes, your ears, your your voice, um, and your heart, right? Okay. So it's influencing your capacity to be in connectivity and relational, right? Uh, attunement and connectivity with others, and so I have been able to tune into that and exponentiate it, to amplify it with somatics and with um, a course that is very IFS-influenced that teaches about the attachment system. And then we can kind of create a way to invite the attachment system to move into a new state, based on the experiences that have been happening with the sound over time, which I spread right. out over five listening sessions once a week to give the body a chance to integrate what has occurred. And usually what occurs, and this is the interesting piece from an IFS perspective, is that um, as safety enters the system through the acoustic pathways, the, the voice or the, the music coming in, but also my resonance, my uh, sitting across from them and being in that intersubjective space, um, we find that the parts start to present themselves. And this might look a little like a psychedelic experience where you may see memories come up or you may feel somatically things happening or you may have an emotion. And um, kind of take a, a ride down memory lane, I would say, uh, of the attachment system. And very similar to breath work modalities, we can take that as far back as we would like to go. And so I set up the conditions to, to go back as far as it needs to go in order to um, shift into a sense of safety and belonging in the world. And those usually occur in the first year of life.
0: Right, right. Mm-hmm. I was just listening to yeah. Gabor Matei talk about his early terror that he felt as a child being handed off by his mother to someone to take care of because of being persecuted in in Germany, or in, I forget where he's, he's from, Hungary. Um, and uh, so the terror that was described by the pediatrician. And so he actually described being thrown out. He was leading us an ayahuasca ceremony in Peru and he wasn't doing the medicine that the native peoples were doing the medicine, but he was there to facilitate and set intentions. And on the, on the second day they're doing all this chanting and they, they have these shamans that chant for a long time, like four or five hours, like for each person there's a, there's a person chanting like right, right with them. In front of them and so Gabor got you know he said, okay, do your worst and like he he had this skepticism and he just didn't doesn't believe in any of the ritual stuff he said and they they actually said to him you you have to they they sent a delegation to him uh, the next day and they said you you, ha- you cannot be part of this ceremony you there's some darkness inside of you that we can tell is going to affect everybody and so he was like, "Whoa!" And then they said, "Instead, we want you to work with somebody intensively, while while the other the participants are doing this." And he he said they use sound clearly, but also the the resonance and the 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 co-regulation you're speaking about, the enchantment perhaps, um, entrainment. And he said it opened up and cleared things, all going all the way back to being one year old and being terrified as a as an infant. Uh, yes. So that's pretty remarkable stuff that you can access. Yes. yes. Uh, and it's hopeful to access that, to know that whatever somebody's dealing with now, right, is is just maybe it's just like the key that turns the ignition in the car, but it's not yes. it's not the cause of the distress or the pain. It's not where where the healing is going to come from.
1: Yes. Yes. There's many things that influence the lens from which we look at life through. And I feel that whether that is our experience in the womb, the conditions in the first year of life, the conditions around us in our culture, in our society. And so sometimes it doesn't matter that we pinpoint exactly it. If we start to think about things in terms of um, frequency the frequency of safety versus the frequency of fear
0: okay so what kinds of sounds so you mentioned like the middle frequency Is, are those the kinds of things that you you give to people their recordings and they and they do on their own time or are there bowls or crystals how are you generating the
1: sound so dr porges has developed an algorithm that he has set to music and the music there's four playlists to choose from one is adult pop music from the 1960s the other is children's disney music Uh, the other is a classical and the fourth is more of a yoga sound bath i would say and so you as a client would have a choice of which playlist you would like to take your medicine from And then the medicine is microdosed in the way that I use it, sitting across from me in a healing group, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: healing circle. Mm -hmm. So we're doing this together, Mm -hmm. mostly, not everyone. Some people come to me privately. But Mm -hmm. there is a certain power that occurs when we bring people together in a group. And we also um, dismantle the um, judgments we might have about our own healing, and we, we neutralize that when we heal in circles. We all have nervous systems, we all have attachment systems, and we all influence each other with those systems. And so that would be the, the setup. And we would put the music on your headset on your phone, and you listen through your own headset in the comfort of your own home, which we've set up to be a cozy nest with some sensory tools there with you. And then each person will push play at the same time and listen to 20 minutes of the music. And then we pause and we process what's happening in the body. Hmm. And we do that during the course of five weeks. And it's about a forty-minute, 45-minute dose of the music each week. And I call it a journey because each time you go in, more material comes up to process. Mm-hmm. And by the end, um, there are is significant shift, usually. But sometimes, if we think of this through the lens of dissociation, we have many layers to get through, in order parts, to exactly parts. yes. And I would say that's mainly what you're traversing is as um, the sound comes in, the protectors come up. And so we meet and greet the protectors, mm-hmm. engage with them, befriend them. And also we meet some of the exiles at the same time. And so um, each person has a different journey, and some go through the journey more than once, depending on how many protectors. Mm-hmm. are right are there
0: and let's talk about protectors for a moment and what what the what the most common ones are of course in IFS we have the idea that all parts are welcome even though some may become extreme or dangerous they're just trying to do some job that maybe once upon a time nobody else was doing so they take on this job and then come to find out they don't get the message that they that there's other ways to do this or there's other capacities that could get the job done. So what are some of the common protectors that might keep people locked into their pain and trauma?
1: I would say in the way that I facilitate it, the SSP is inviting the client, the participant to come into a sense of safety and belonging. The ability to rest into relational support, relational presence and to feel worthy of that being there and the support being there regardless. Okay, so that's a fairly early belief system, right? The world is safe. I am safe. I am supported. So we're going to see any protector that does not believe that, right? Or that we have, that's been employed because that wasn't true. Right, so we are going to see the overthinking mind, right? That jumps from dis- uh, uh, thought to thought and starts to do our grocery list while we're listening to the music, and does everything it can to keep us away from the music, the music being a relationship.
0: That sounds really beautiful, Paula.
1: What's the role
0: of of hope in this? And, and I ask that. For people who have had experiences in therapy, we might say more traditional experiences where, you know, the therapists in, in decades past have been trained to not give their subjective opinion um, and to not um, not only not touch them physically, but to not even give the appearance of caring for them emotionally, right? Um Every time I say this there's someone in the, in a, in the group that says, "You know our training has changed, and it's not as difficult but then I hear ten clients come come from a psychoanalytic therapist or something like that. It may not just be that it could be cognitive behavioral um, where there's there's this detachment you know I'm just doing a job so can you talk about why hope is important
1: mm-hmm. well i hope I think hope is connected to um what I hope is a trend that's happening now, which is that we all need to come more into heart consciousness, this ability to um, connect to each other from a different place, not from the mind, not from, Mm -hmm. I have all this information I'm going to impart on you, right? And then you can take that and cognitively do something with that. But from a human place, from a person to person, Place. And I think hope falls into that area of the body um, with compassion, with our sense of being able to feel our humanness together. And if we are more human as providers and vulnerable about our own uh, humanness, that we, we, are often only a few steps in front of our clients most of the time, right? And we normalize that. Um, then we become the hope for them, Mm -hmm. right? But if we are disconnected and they feel that it's out of reach for them because they don't have all the resources or, um, there's a, there's a, you know, magic bullet to this. Uh, there's not. It's a spiral path, and we're all on it, and we all have bumps. And when we are able to even share some of those bumps with our clients, uh, I think it gives them immense hope that it's possible. It
0: it reminds me that you know, a couple weeks ago, I've been working with a client for several months and at this point something came up about wanting wanting a little bit more um, feedback about how he thought he was doing or if if I you know was with him you know kind of asking for can you know do I have hope and um, he said I'll I'll never forget this he said he's been repeating it to to other people he said when he when he first he said when I first met my therapist all I can remember is that you said something about, you know, um, this is the, the work I do, and I explained a little bit about how I work with people. And I said I'm also going through a divorce, and I'm dealing with some health issues, in other words, depression. And I said that's just who I am, and I'm still here, and I'm still capable and ready to be there with you. And and he said that was I had you know I had, I was doing it for my own sort of like. Like, look, I don't want someone to say, like, you don't look well today. <laughs> like, you know, I want people to know, like, you know, I'm handling things and I have real things going on. Um, but he said it would not, he would not, been some of his protectors would not have been able to relax enough to realize that, okay, this guy's not going to judge me, you know? Yes. So. It's very <laughs> was, powerful. Such good feedback.
1: Yeah. Very powerful. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about psychedelics. It's the topic du jour right now in in so many ways because the FDA has announced that they're going to um, approve MDMA for PTSD in August of 2024, and that means the DEA will then have 90 days to reschedule that drug from a drug that has no scientific purpose whatsoever to one that has actual medicinal purpose with supervision. So we're in a renaissance, and in many ways, um, things like ketamine have been leading the way as the only legal, currently legal, psychedelic-like substance um, in this country. But so many people are experimenting on their own, and of course, then in the next few years, we'll have more and more um, safe, legal ways to use this with our own clients. How do you use it currently, or how do you approach this with clients? And what's your experience?
1: Well, I do have to say I'm not trained in psychedelics. I use sound similar to, and so Mm -hmm. for me, the similarity would be that we are using something to invite a person into the body to be curious, to allow processes to unfold, um, with this witnessing, and this allowing, and the more that we allow, the more we'll come to be unraveled and exposed and um, rebalanced. And so sound works in a similar way, I think, is that it elicits deep parasympathetic states that allow you to move into witness consciousness or what I call with this particular program because it's influencing the social engagement system, right brain processes. Mm -hmm. And you can think of the right brain as when you were an infant, you didn't have a lot of thoughts. You had this spaciousness, right? And this curiosity and this awe and this wonder and you were simply being and experiencing from place of witness and it had you know elements like your dreams were probably fairly psychedelic as an infant and uh, this is the work, this is the work of Stan Groff and holotropic breathwork um mm-hmm. and in my SSP groups people start to have bizarre dreams that start to happen as part of their shift in consciousness. And um, I think the difference with sound is that you can stop and take the headset off and take a break and integrate and wait another week. And with psychedelics, not so much. No, there's no no slowing it down. It's down the slide. You're on that ride. Um, Mm -hmm. I also feel because with the sound we can stop, feel, check in with the body, process if we need to, there's no bypassing. There's no skipping over anything Mm -hmm. because we can titrate and monitor it pretty closely um, mm-hmm. and I do wonder with the psychedelics if um, we are able to do that or if there will be any bypassing of material
0: yep it's a great great question mm-hmm. and, and one one that as a therapist that works in the integration after ketamine sessions um, we, we deal with all the time you know and there's a saying i think in psychedelic work which is like you you know the medicine knows where it needs to go and so there is a trusting of that so so if, if somebody's bypassing you know for a new therapist oh no oh my goodness i shouldn't let this happen well it might be all right let's just see um maybe that really is the another safety mechanism kicking in and they need to do some bypassing to build trust but we stay curious and we try to ask questions about, well, what would it be like if you didn't, if you actually tuned in? Um, I think that was, that was some of the earliest um, hints from people like Stan Groff and Rick Doblin in, in what they described in the sixties and seventies of, you know, they were doing a lot of MDMA and LSD and and occasionally somebody would say, you know, this is, Mm -hmm. this feels great every time we're doing this, but, I'm going to think about something really awful and see what happens while I'm doing it. And that's when some of the therapeutic concepts began spilling out to say, wait, we could we could actually do this with other people and say, what if you intentionally focused your thoughts on instead of bypassing? So,
1: yes. So that brings me to the intention piece for both of these, for sound and psychedelics, is setting up the intention and the environment is just as important as the intervention itself. And in my case, the intention is to go in to meet and greet and find and retrieve the inner child, the self, the big Mm -hmm. self, right? Um, So we do a meditation at the beginning and the end, to bookmark that process. Um, in my understanding, and depending on who's supporting in the psychedelic processes, there is a lot of intention and support as well. Um, so it's not just uh, given out without thinking about um, why we're doing it and what our intention is. And that's my other thought process around psychedelics and making it available to people to be using it. What is your intention? How are you using it? What are the conditions mm-hmm. around you? And what are you hoping to contact with it? Mm-hmm. And what do you do with that material once you contact it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's the integration piece. And and would you agree that sometimes, not sometimes, that we do, we do need each other? You know, there's this independent, fierce sort of, Mythology in our American culture that independence, and I would just say capitalist culture. Period. Um, independence and being, you know, fit and surviving is all you need to worry about. You, you don't need to worry about other people, except to compete with them. <laughs> um, uh, would you agree that that mythology has has is really what we're up against a lot of times? With I, I'm going to say especially men, but it's not just men.
1: Yes. Well, I think you've hit the nail because if I had to say what my hope would be with the sound system, because it influences the the neural platform that allows us to be in receptivity, connectivity, and attunement in relationship, it's really influential in breaking down that norm and that belief system. Um, particularly, I would say, uh, dropping us out of this feeling of, I can do everything from my mind and I can conquer from my mind to, um, oh, I actually, I have a heart and I'm connected to people and people matter and I need people and maybe I can't do this on my own. And so it invites a whole nother set of belief systems, um, and so any modality that we have access to right now that invites us into the state of um, considering that we are interdependent, that we need each other and that, you know, maybe we can't do it. Maybe we been trying to do it on our own and look where we are, right? As a result. And so that yeah. it's time to try something different.
0: Yeah. Dick Schwartz, the founder of IFS, has this book that he came out with a long time ago called "You Are the One You've Been Waiting For." Or that actually could be Mona Barbara, another IFS practitioner, but I um, can't remember. Someone will have to correct me, but I think it's I think Dick wrote that book. But it's about IFS in relationships inter- how internal family systems is used in relationships. Because what Dick did is really revolutionary in terms of the family therapy movement, which itself was revolutionary coming out of behavioralism you know it's not just you know these behavioral programs like pavlovian programs there's a family system that's affecting the role that you might be you know narrowing or expanding the role that you have to do a certain thing and dick comes along in um like 40 years ago now and says well actually we can work with that system and that's true with other people, the interdependentness of other people. Like if, if a, you know, there's an eating disorder, um, symptom and in one particular child, you know, instead of just treating that child, Dick was part of this family movement that would say, treat the family. And you'd find out there's there's some people covertly aligning and they're not speaking about it with the eating disorder. They're aligning with it in some way contributing, um, and so he could intervene with that other person, and then the eating disorder person with the symptoms starts to get more space. But then he said, that's not the whole story. Like there's, you know, the person we carry around these different personalities. Like you said, the inner child is one part. The, the you know, the part that needs to forage and do what I have to do to survive, that's another part. Um, so I guess it's both and, right? We, there is There is a... A, a need to have your own self-soothing mechanism, self-regulation, self-talk, relationship to parts. But somehow we can't just do it in a vacuum.
1: I agree. And, and to take it a step further, that capacity to, to be able to truly soothe ourself is built in the context of relationship. So we learn how to do that from repeated experiences of co-regulation. And if we don't have that, we end up doing what's called auto-regulating, which is not the same as self-regulating. Say more about that. So auto-regulating would mean I am going to um, watch TV... Or do engage in an activity that is is just me um, doing a survival strategy because I don't have co-regulation on board.
0: Oh well, like like playing sports can be
1: can be so has been for me has be. <laughs> um, versus I'm self-regulating as a choice. I can co-regulate and I can self-regulate. I can do one or the other and I can move between the two with ease. And I know when I need one or the other. But auto-regulating is, is actually what I treat mostly, which is I never had the co-regulation in the first place, the real foundational. So I have all these tools that I use to regulate. And if I don't do those, I don't feel good good and i call that stress and so i have to do this 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 and it it's out of a survival <clears throat> out of a survival need rather than um something that is has less efforting around it mm.
0: that really speaks to me I'll, I'll sign up right now because i'm i'm uh... Quite, quite familiar with the auto-regulating. I, I I had not heard of or really thought about that distinction before. So that's really helpful. It makes sense that those things, even though they're better than nothing, they're certainly like surrogate parents in in a lot of ways. These ex exogenous activities we can get into, which for some people who have an attachment injury at the at the, you know, like what is it, eight to twelve years old uh, exploration, or probably more like six to ten. Uh, exploration was stunted and not allowed and forbidden and punished by your parents, well, they they are not going to have any comfort with auto-regulation. They're they're not going to be able to just engage and try something, I would imagine.
1: Yes, it depends Um, on where, uh, what age of the developmental task occurred that did not get supported and mastered, and then we can develop strategies that reflect that, right? Yeah.
0: Fascinating. Well, is there are there any other things you'd like our listeners to know about you and where to find you? What, things that you're working on, where they can find access to this sort of treatment? It sounds really amazing and life changing.
1: Wonderful. Yes. Um, as I mentioned, there's many providers offering the Safe and Sound program through a variety of lenses and very adaptable. Um, my particular lens is through. You know, more of an internal family systems lens and the attachment and a group model, right? Coming together. Mm -hmm. And so uh, people can find me on my website and look into my groups if they're interested at www.paulascataloni.com.
0: Great. And spell Scataloni for us.
1: S-C-A-T-O-L-O-N-I.
0: paulascataloni.com. Paul, it's been really nice speaking with you, and I, I look forward to uh, staying in touch. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the time.
0: You're welcome.